So for those wondering, um, it's not a mistake or a typo that the title of this show has a blank for the value selected. And it's also not a knock in any way on my guest Alex that like suggesting he was indecisive or just unwilling to commit to a value or anything like that. Um, it's just, as you'll hear us discuss in the show, leaving the value blank was felt like the most honest thing I could put after the conversation we had. Anything else would have felt contrived or forced. Um, so we went with blank. <laughs> and to back up for a moment, just to give a little context. So Alex is perhaps one of the most curious humans I've ever met. And I don't say that for hyperbole or effect. Um, he, he's, he's a young philosopher, ultimately. Uh, he hosts his own podcast called Escaping Mediocrity. And he just has a deep, deep interest in trying to understand humanity and existence. And he goes about it in this kind of like really pure Socratic logical way. For any of you that have listened to the show before or heard me speak or anything like that, you know I'm someone who likes to question and challenge everything. I believe that's crucial. But I think Alex takes this whole, whole nother level. Um, right from the jump, you'll get an idea of the kind of kind of attacking style. And, and I mean that in a good way, that attacking style he takes to these types of conversations. He inspects and dissects every word and wants to be clear on what exactly you're saying, how you define the words you're using, and the logical implications of that. And some people might experience that and be like, geesh, this is kind of rough. <laughs> it's difficult to have a conversation this way. And, and as I learned, you know, when you do that in this type of conversation, you have to be really careful with your word choice um, and what you mean by it, because he's not going to give you any free passes. And again, I get some people finding that difficult, but I actually found it to be super helpful. I think it forced me to be really tight and clear on the point I was trying to make. It forced both of us to kind of challenge everything we were thinking and saying, and I have to believe that rigor leads to some better insights. So ultimately, kind of this, this ended up being another one of those conversations where it's hard to summarize in a brief write-up because we got into a lot of different philosophical topics. Um, but just to give you a little flavor for it, you know, we, we talked about things like right off the bat, you know, what does value actually mean? How do we define that? We talked about certainty and if it's ever possible. We talked about the idea of the self and if it actually exists. And we tried to make it practical talking about things like, you know, an example Alex brought up where he can love a donut and hate a donut at the same time. And like, what are the implications of that? How does that work? So really, really interesting topics, really, really interesting conversation. Um, and maybe the biggest conclusion as we work through all of this, and we work through a lot, is that if you dig deep enough on any topic, you're going to hit a point where you're left with unexplainable assumptions or presuppositions that you'll likely never be able to fully understand. And that's the reason we ultimately decided to leave his value as blank, because we both kind of acknowledge that we don't really know enough about anything to have true conviction on an answer for that. Um, so big thanks to Alex for being on. Big thanks for his approach to life and the way he tries to understand more. Uh, and hopefully you guys enjoy the conversation like I did. All right, Alex, thanks so much for being on. Really, really excited to talk to you today. I think we're going to have a cool conversation. Um, but I will start with the first question that I always do of what's the value that's most important to you? It's a pleasure for me to be here, Terrence. And well, the question of what is value, it's it can be attacked from multiple different perspectives. I would attack it first from a biological perspective. That's what I like doing the most and trying to analyze what natural selection built us for. Mm. There's a term called or homeostasis, which is the balance in all the physical constants that we need in order to be able to function correctly. I need sugar, I need proteins, I need a lot of things to be functioning correctly in order to be able to function 
as what my identity is. I'm composed of certain amount of uh, molecules, cells, and all those things build up my person. And in order for that to be functioning, I need those things, all, all of those factors, millions of factors to be going on constantly. So from a biological perspective, I think what is value and what leads to our emotions is the constant seeking of homeostasis, which is the fight against entropy, I guess. Mm -hmm. You use energy to be able to function and keep going and maintain the identity that has been built. I don't know how built uh, life started. I've got no idea how that was the case. But, but yeah, I think that natural selection gives us a good lens, a really good ones, to understand what is value and what why we consider some things as valuable and why we are deluded into believing that a sugary donut is valuable when it actually isn't. Mm, mm. So maybe I'll, I'll jump deep right off the bat because I think it's interesting. And I think you mentioned that you don't know how life started. Neither do I. I was hoping you did. I keep hoping somebody on this show is going gonna, is gonna to have the answer to that one. But Nick Lane, um, check, check, yeah. his, check, check his workout. Nick Lane from London. He's Nick a Lane. great biologist. Amazing work. I've been checking a few books of him and it's just amazing. Yeah. Okay. I will check that out. But the question I was going to ask was, um, if if we don't know what started life, right? If we don't know, if we if we can never know actually the biological or scientific or whatever the spiritual, who knows, underpinnings that even created the um, concepts and the design that you just explained, right? Of how homeostasis works and how the body works and all that, which is very very logical and makes sense. If we don't actually, if if we know that we can't fully understand it if we don't know what actually underpinned it or what the intention was of that design, I think it's safe to say we're making assumptions throughout much of that, right? Because we just, we just don't know. So we're making the best logical assumptions we can. How do you reconcile that with your approach to life? Because um, I've referenced this on the show before. I, I, would, I would imagine you might have heard it. Uh, Tol Tol Tolstoy has a quote where he says, if I, if I don't know who I am or why I'm here, then life is impossible. And the way I interpret that is you could be the most brilliant person in the world. You could study science, philosophy, arts, et cetera, but all of that is still incomplete. And whatever that missing piece is may be so critical to actually understanding and fundamentally change everything that you think you understand about the world. So you can get to this place of just hopelessness. And I know philosophers have gone here before, but I just, I think it's interesting given how you started the show very logically and kind of going into an approach of saying, well, let's understand values, which I think makes sense. But why do you feel confident in that approach when arguably this whole thing, we don't really understand it at all. So the logic doesn't even really hold to it. I don't think there are presuppositions that you have to be, that have to be done in order to argue about life. That I, I, I see it perfectly compatible with the existence of matter that just happens to be allocated or distributed in a perfect way to be able to form the first proteins and then the folding and then the natural selection and then the DNA and then, and then all those amazing things that have been built. I see that as plausible if you give it enough time and enough interactions, random interactions that maybe would end up happening. So I don't think you really need a presupposition, which is weak in that you need it in the assumption of the existence of matter that's ultimately where everything comes from why is there anything at all and in respect to your comment that you did about the the quote this quote that I, I actually like it but i think it's incoherent it doesn't make sense to me that 
in order to be able, in, in, in order to consider life as possible, you need to understand where it comes from or where it goes. That doesn't make sense to me in the sense that you are considering possible whatever comment you are articulating while positing that quote. Mm-hmm. That is possible by definition. You couldn't do anything else. True. You wouldn't be saying it. So there's some possibility. Well, and here's what I think. Um, I've had a chance to listen to some of your stuff, Alex. And I think I, what I love about your approach is it, it, what it always makes me think is the importance of language and defining the terms that we're using. And I think this is a good example of that. When when he says, and I repeat the word impossible, what do we actually mean by that? If we mean it in its quite literal form, which I think is how you're responding to it, that literally life is impossible. It cannot function if we don't have those answers. I think you're right. You're spot on to say, well, you just made that statement. So clearly something is possible. I think what he means, and, and, and I think I'm, I'm curious your take on this, is at a much deeper level. And it's the reason why I have this show, why I ask the question, what's the value? Um, to me, to, to function in life, we can function. We have to function, right? We, we're going to move. We're going to make decisions. Even a lack of a decision is a decision. Um, even a lack of an emotion, you can argue, is an emotion. That's a feeling of, of neutrality. But to do it with any intentionality, to do it with any conviction, I think is what he was getting at when he said it's impossible. Because to be grounded in anything with the with the, a degree of confidence to feel like I know what I'm doing and I know why I'm doing it. I think that's the spirit of the quote, which is back to where we started in that last question. If at the very foundational level, we have gaps and we don't understand it, how can I ever have conviction in this world? How can any of it ever feel meaningful in a more, I guess, philosophical sense in that way? What do you say to that? I think that my my comment was also approaching your deeper perspective. It 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 relates to the not deep or less deeper level, less deep level in which yeah it functions sure. objectively. It works. You, you're able to articulate this thought, but also at the deeper level, he's claiming that life is not possible from the deeper perspective of what is making your life worthy of being lived is pointing towards a lack of meaning and you are making reference to that meaning. So by definition, the meaning exists in some way, even if it doesn't materially, it does in the concept that you are articulating. Mm -hmm. So there's, you cannot say there's no meaning and still do the phrasing of the phrase. What what if it's, what if it's, it's not that there's no meaning because I agree with you. I think, I think, Arguably, it might be, there may be no meaning, right? It's possible that however we define that, but let's put that aside for a second. Let's assume there is a meaning to life, but we just can't understand it. We can't grasp it ever at the level to fully have an understanding of it. Is that where the impossibility comes in? Because that's what makes life so torturous. This idea that I'm here, I have to take action, and I should take that action based on something meaningful and tangible that I can understand but I also acknowledge that I can never fully understand it and what that meaning is. And that's the impossibility of life where it can drive some people to feel like, well, there's no point in me even being alive then. And in that vein, does that change it at all? Well, what is a point? What is something that, what's the point of you making that comment at all? If, if there's no point. I think it's the search for the point, right? I think the only, here's my view of it, which totally could be wrong. The only logical, big L logical thing we can do on this earth is to try and understand what the point of us being here is, right? For some people, that might just be pleasure. They might decide that's what it is, right? But I think 
back to, again, the question of what's the value. The only logical thing to do is to figure out why does it make sense for me to be here and then to optimize for that. We do that every day, whether we admit it or not. That's all of our actions, all our decisions are geared around that. So the point becomes that we're all here searching for what the point is. Why are we here? What's the value? What's life mean? But because we never get to an answer that we can feel 100% confident in, our whole purpose of being here is almost by definition negated, which is what makes life impossible. And why that dichotomy then? There's some people who don't, you, you started the, the phrase by saying that I, I, I only see, I see the only logical thing in life to seek for the, the meaning mm -hmm. or the thing that's valuable. And mm -hmm. then you say, but everyone does it, which I agree with. But yes. so, so then there's not a dichotomy. Everyone does it, maybe not at a, at a conscious level, but what is conscious? Can we define that? Where's the where's the border between someone who's doing it at a conscious level and someone who's not? Because if you you've thought about this for let's say a hundred hours, mm -hmm. but what if you only thought about it for thirty minutes? Would that still be conscious? Okay, what about 50, 50 seconds? Well, what about fifteen seconds? There, it's not black or white. It's like a fucking gray which goes yeah, all the way. Yeah, yeah. Well, you're asking the right questions. I'm going to throw another quote at us to, to try. And I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not throwing quotes out for any other reason than I think they help move the conversation along. It makes me think of the, of the maybe most famous philosophical quote of Socrates, the unexamined life isn't worth living. And, and I think that's a deeply profound and meaningful quote that most people gloss over of it. I think that to your point about everybody's doing it, right? Now, we can, let's, we'll, let's talk about the conscious subconscious in a second. But I think to push this a step further, we're all here to find the meaning in life. We are acting in accordance with whatever meaning we identified, whether it be conscious or subconsciously. I, I hesitate to say this phrase because I already know there's going to be a comeback on it. But the right approach to it is to make sure that we're examined. You have to be thoughtful about finding that meaning in life because the trap is to just go along with it and just kind of be pulled along by inertia. What Socrates is saying, pairing it with Tolstoy, is that the best you could do is to just constantly be questioning and and trying to um, attack your assumptions to get to a better conclusion. That implies there's a right way, though. Like, who's to say that's the right way? But let me stop there for a second and see. Like, is that is that where we're getting to? That the right the right way to live is to look for a meaning and constantly examine, search. And, and, and pressure test and attack your assumptions around that meaning to try and make sure you're at the best possible answer. I think that quote from Aristotle is awfully, but I think we have to be aware of the existence of multiple levels of analysis. And I don't know if there is a limit to them. When you say that the, the, the thing that makes it everything valuable or worth being lived at all is the fact of questioning or inspection in your own existence. Well, that comes from the extrapolation from a more mundane aspect of the same concept, which is how do I crack a nut? I need a harder thing than the nut in order to be able to crack it. Okay, so there's a logic there, which you can do trial and error, the scientific method. You can see different objects colliding with the nut and then you don't get the objective, which is eating the fruit of it. And then you, you try something else. So you inspect, you have an inspection to be able to achieve your objective which would be in this case, nothing different from what I started mm -hmm. saying that is homeostasis. You want food to be able to maintain yourself fed. And what made us capable, capable of having these complex thoughts 
is still homeostasis due to sexual selection. We humans who were more able to have coherent articulations of thoughts or who were more congruent with what they were claiming had a bigger fitness defined by your capacity to reproduce or survive. Mm. And so I, I don't think you can get out of this. And if you extract that, you, and if you understand that there's multiple levels of analysis and you understand that that quote also applies to the monkey trying to break the nut to be able to eat its interior, it's the exact same concept that Aristotle was trying to do. He's, he's got a nut metaphorically and he's trying to crack it. And what way can you crack it? Maybe everything is ultimately about dopamine. Everything is, everyone is looking for pleasure. Ultimately, that's the ultimate currency. No one is doing anything else. Aristotle was doing that while phrasing that. I am doing that while phrasing what I'm, while I'm uttering mm -hmm. the, the, the gnosis I'm uttering. The, nut, the, the monkey was doing that while trying to break the nut. So everyone is trying to seek for dopamine. Why dopamine? Well, we've been designed to seek for Mm -hmm. the, the, the way our brains have been evolved to, to signal us that there's something going in a correct way is by that. Well, and can I, I jump maybe, in there, Alex? Because I think it's a good point to illustrate maybe the dichotomy. I agree with everything you just said, quite quite literally. I don't say that for effect. I don't say that to be nice. I, I very much agree that pleasure is, is all we do and seek. Um, there's different definitions of that, different time horizons. But you say, why? Because of dopamine. Because our, we've been designed to... to but why was it designed that way, right? That's the obvious next question. And to me, that's what gets really interesting. Because if the answer is, it doesn't matter, then dopamine is our God, in effect, in the way that we talk about God. Dopamine is the thing we worship. It's the most important thing in our lives. It is the creator of everything that exists because it, it drives everything we do at a very first principles level. I think most people would say that's not the answer, though. There's a reason why dopamine and you can continue down a biological thread, which I think there's probably a lot of validity to. But at the end of every biological or scientific thread, it becomes philosophical, I, I think, right? But why that? But why that? What What is your ultimate why? Like, how do what, do you ever go down to the end of that thread? And let's stick with that thread. Why, why dopamine, right? If we go all the way, what is your ultimate? Is there a stopping point? Well, there, there's presuppositions. I'm assuming the existence of consciousness in some way. I cannot give you a rigorous enough well, not, I, I don't know if I can even give you a definition of consciousness at all, but there's, there is some consciousness in me that points me towards what has been somewhat proven in the past to maximize fitness enough so that my ancestors have reproduced. Mm -hmm. and, and that is ultimately what has made me be able to be here. Just the successful reproduction of mm -hmm. previous entities. But are you cool stopping at that point? Are you? And I'm not judging it. You you may very well be right. I think there's a lot. There's very there's a lot of depth in that. But are you cool stopping at that point to say the biological or scientific explanation of how evolution has worked that led me to be here? Like that that is ultimately the first principle level answer that you're comfortable with. And then the whole rest of your life, your value system, the way you move through the world is built on that foundation. Is that kind of where you go with it? That's where I build everything from, but that doesn't mean that I'm comfortable with it. Okay. I'm not comfortable with it because there's presuppositions. In, able, in order to be able to not have presuppositions, you would have to articulate in some coherent way 
everything which is required in order to start a dialogue from scratch, from yes. absolute scratch. Yes. The, and that thing, that format in which you have articulated everything, but basically life or what there, or not even the existence of matter, you cannot presuppose that. So I have a lot of presuppositions in my claimings and I'm not comfortable with that, but I haven't seen an, a way of getting away from those presuppositions. And that's the dichotomy, I, I believe. That's the dichotomy we touched on before, right? You acknowledge those presuppositions. You acknowledge there's unknowns in this. But you have to work with what you have. And that, to me, I, that gets right back to Tolstoy. I think that was his impossibility point. I have to work with what I have, but I know what I have is not good enough. So what am I supposed to do with that? It seems like for you, understandably, and correct me, You've taken comfort in, I've gone as far back as I think I can. I'm using science and scientific method, biology, et cetera, as my framing, which most would agree is, is a pretty solid framing. And you're building off of that. And, and obviously you're here talking to me and I, you could say the same about me. You're comfortable enough with it to, to exist and to function in the world and to have aspirations and dreams and goals. My question for you is, is there ever a time late at night, early in the morning, whatever, where you think about that? And you go the maybe even cliche route of saying, but because of those presuppositions, everything I'm doing is kind of meaningless. Like it's, I, I have no confidence to say that this is the quote unquote right life for me to be living. Like it's just, it's all an illusion in effect that we've, we, we've had to, and I want to get into consciousness. I really do. Cause I have some interesting thoughts. I'm curious what you think, but before getting into that consciousness point of the illusion, just life in general, us creating meaning in it making these decisions, feeling like biology or science is enough. Is it safe for us all to acknowledge it gives us comfort, it gives us pleasure, which is why we do it. But in reality, objectively, it's not, it's, it's no answer at all. It's nothing. We're all guessing at the end of the day. Is, are you comfortable saying that? I think I'm comfortable because I've seen a physical limitation to the presuppositions. There's not a way of getting away from it. No matter how many of these presuppositions you solve by rigorously defining what I was claiming to be impossibly mm -hmm. definable, which is the whatever you need to start dialogue out of scratch. Even if you did that, that information would have been put into a state which wasn't the life itself or the dialogue itself. There's an, an, an analog version mm -hmm. of that. And that is presupposing something so I don't think this is this is like the debate between an atheist and a and a mm -hmm. theist. You you say okay, but so God created everything, but who created God? Mm -hmm. That's it. You're presupposing the existence of God. There's no way of getting away from this. Even if you respond, if you, even if you respond, okay, this other God, bigger God mm -hmm. and stronger God, created this second God. But there there's turtles all the way down. The yeah. ultimate thing that we cannot answer is. Why is there anything at all? Mm -hmm. And I don't think, and I'm not judging anybody. We all do this. I don't think we as a, as a human species acknowledge that fact enough. I think we move through the world, probably out of necessity, probably out of pleasure, acting as if what you just said is not actually the case. And I don't know what the implication of that is. I'd like to believe we would be better off as a society if more people acknowledge that fact. Because I, I'll go back to what it means for me. For me, it means I never, I don't believe certainty exists in anything. I believe conviction, although sometimes seemingly a good thing, 
should, is never actually warranted. Nobody should ever be pounding a table on any belief, whether it be scientific, societal, per, like nothing, because it's all grounded and rooted in presuppositions that we can never get to the first principle level of. And with that existing, everything else is suspect and called into question. Back to Socrates' quote of, you know, the unexamined life. Are, are, is, are you cool with that? Or like, is that a fair statement to say? And what do you think the implications of it are? The fact that people don't acknowledge that enough. First of all, let me push back on, on what you said. Yeah, 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 please. Are you certain about the unworthiness of certainty? No, which is a funny thing, which is <laughs> your point, which I think actually proves uncertainty is the only way because you can't even be certain in certain, in un, you know what I mean? Like that doesn't even hold. But so in, uh, yeah, sorry, keep going. In, in, the, in the proportion that you accept that your claim is itself uncertain, you are leaving some certainty go into the system. Um, that's an interesting way to phrase it. Um, and to put it, it's possible, uh, as here's I'll say, it's possible that certainty should exist. But inherent in that phrase, that possible word is still an overarching uncertainty, even about, so I, like a, it's almost like a big C, little C, like at the very macro level, uncertainty cannot exist, is almost what it is. Because even if certainty should exist, we would never know it. Okay, the, the only way to get away from this absolute question is that I've always tried to debunk in my sure. friends or people who I've heard. Like, if, if you say everything is meaningless, okay, but why state that? Why is the stating of that meaningful? And then they are like, oh, yeah, that, you're, you're fucking right. There's, nothing, there's something that must be meaningful for me to be able to phrase this at all. But there's a way which I haven't been able to debunk to do yeah. a, an absolute statement, which requires... The inclusion of an of an of an exclusion inside of your phrasing. You say there's no certainty about 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 anything apart from this phrase, and then that's coherent. I think you're right. I think there's the the, the phrase that triggered you, which is the right phrase, is the phrase I'm going to say again. There's nothing we can be certain about, and that's the problematic phrase because that phrase assumes certainty about certainty. And maybe it's a maybe it's a more of a testament to language being insufficient. That it, to me, it, it makes me think of nothingness. Like, what does nothingness mean? Like, there's no framework or benchmark or reference point to say what nothingness is. It feels like that's similar here. Um, the certainty that we're talking about that shouldn't exist. There's no way to explain that. We try and do it with words, but as we're proving, words do not do it justice. I think the concept of it is what proves it. The fact that presupposition thread you went down before, that's what gives me an understanding of why certainty can, does not exist for humans. Which even as I'm saying that, I'm going through mental gymnastics to try and say it in a way that stays within the bounds that feels logically you know, safe. Um, but how else would you say it? that presupposition thread you said before, what is the conclusion you would draw from it? If not, when I understand why you're saying it, if it's not, certainty doesn't exist. What is the conclusion of it? That everything is possible among the realm of reality. Okay. Like, like the, David Dodge, I think David Dodge is one of the greatest physicists ever, which have, which has ever existed. And his book, he's got a book called the beginning of infinity in which hmm. he talks about the potential infinite, infinite spreading of humanity and knowledge across the space and time and all dimensions if we just know how to do it 
the thing that's limiting our doing of something is just the lack of knowledge of how to do it. If you, if you don't, if you have the knowledge of how to debunk or destroy all presuppositions, you're able to build matter out of ether, because if you know how to do that, you, you do it, but I, I do not. So I cannot build mm -hmm. matter out of ether. So going back to the, if, if I feel comfortable with it, well, no, no, I do not. But what's the alternative? What's the alternative? And all right, so let me throw something at you then around consciousness, because here's the working theory I'm, I'm, I've been using lately about consciousness. People often ask the question, is consciousness a gift or a curse? Um, I, I don't know the answer to that. There's a lot of assumptions and subjectivity in that. But I do think that consciousness is, um, I guess I'd say it's more of a curse because all, I, I'll say it this way. I don't know if we were supposed to get consciousness and what is supposed to mean, who would have given it to us, who wouldn't have biology, evolution allowed for it. But by that, I just mean this conversation we're having, given that it cannot be resolved, it almost feels like our consciousness is just a method of torture for us, where because we can observe these things, because we can be aware of the things we don't know and the limitations of our own mind and, and how we function, it leads us to just being tortured. It leads us to a place where we can't really do anything about it. We can't overcome some of the biological underpinnings that allowed us to get to this point. We are now seeing inside of a system that we were never designed or intended to see inside of. And all these conclusions we're drawing are just us trying to make sense of a world we never should have existed in. What do you say to that? Are you making a reference to the fact that we became self-aware only to realize that this story is not about us? I don't even, I would go a step before that. We don't even know, we don't, the story might be about us. We, 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 we became aware to know that a story is happening and we have no idea what it, we'll never see what it is. It might be about us, it may not be. It could be that the Judeo-Christian view that there is literally a God in the sky who created the world in seven days is actually the truth. From where I sit, I can never know that for sure. There's nothing you could, or it's not nothing, but there's nothing that exists that would give me any confidence in that, that that's definitely true. So it's, it's, it's a step before that to say, we could be the center of it. I have no idea. We, we are just in a world that we cannot make sense of. I, I don't think that can be true because you've arrived at that conclusion with some information. You weren't born having come to that conclusion. And if there's, if there's been something, if there's a step-by-step -step process of getting to that conclusion, there must be a way of step-by-step -step getting out of that. And then assuming as a dogma, that there's certainty and like whatever opposite, mm. polar opposite conclusion you could have. What, why does that have to be true though? Why do you believe that? Do you believe in the progression of, of humanity or consciousness that we are the trajectory, we are learning more and more. And the fact that I've learned enough and you've learned enough for us to have this conversation, it means maybe in a hundred thousand million years, we can get to the answer of the, the ultimate presupposition. I don't know. <laughs> That's too big of a question for me to answer. But so, what, I think... so, so, what, go back to what you said, though. You said the fact that I was able to make that statement proves that I can get out of that statement. What did you mean by that? Why does it? Why is it a proven? Why is that a given? Yeah. If there's a way to build something, there's also a way to destroy it. So the fact that I built that concept or whoever, right? I'm not the first one to come up with it, but that means that concept could be destroyed. 
Yeah, and you could conclude the exact po the polar opposite of that, and I still believe that that's rigorous. But does that? Are you taking comfort in the fact that the possibility is there, even though like is it is it not actually? Because I, I agree with you that the possibility is there, but there's no. It's not a given. It's not a foregone conclusion. Do you think it's a foregone conclusion? No, you're well, saying more conceptually, it's just possible. Yes. And what does that do for you? What is the what's the implication of it being possible? That you haven't arrived at any indefinite conclusion at all. Yes. Okay. You and I are on the same page there. Okay. I'm with you on that. And 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 that's the twist of it. That's where words fail because the point I'm trying to articulate is that. There's nothing that get, to me gets back to the certainty point that we can't be certain about anything, which I know that phrase is already flawed, but that's what that gets back to. So how do you make, how do you personally, Alex, how do you make sense of all of this? When we get off this call that we're on right now, you're going to go do something else with your life. How do you keep this knowledge or these thoughts you have in your head, but still function in the, in the normal world? I do not make sense of it. Okay. That's the way of going. I think there's a limit to your cognitive capacity, and you cannot be simultaneously you cannot be simultaneously aware of every theory you hold as true, and judge if those all all those theories that you hold as being true are being coherently applied to your life. Right. That's just too much bandwidth hmm? my bandwidth is too low to be able to afford that so i simply do not do it what do you do is there like i guess let's go back to the first question the value what is most what drives your your I, i'm not sure what you're where you're at in life and what you're doing but whatever goals you're pursuing how have you gained confidence to say those are the right goals for me to be pursuing and i don't say right in like a moralistic way i mean just the ones you decided to say i'm going to dedicate my time towards I guess you are question, you are asking me to respond to why do I not commit suicide? Probably, yeah. If you follow the thread, yeah, probably. Okay. It's, well, it's just, maybe, I mean, maybe. Let me hear your answer. Maybe. <laughs> the, the reason why I do not commit suicide is because I hold my life to be worthy of being lived, and that has just been a dogmatic assumption of the previous thoughts I've held. It's the inheritance of previous thoughts that I've had that has led to this version of the thoughts I'm having to still be still share a lot of genetics, let's say, mm -hmm. with that presupposition. When I was five, I wasn't thinking about this, mm -hmm. but now I'm, I'm thinking about this, but there's still some genome or how some features of it, of presupposition of, hey, this is worth it. And the thing that I've, been, I've come to the conclude is that, sure, you can state that life is meaningless in a rigorous manner, by saying that like, everything is meaningless except from the stating of this phrase, Correct. and that would be yeah. meaningful, or that, that would make sense uh, logically to me. But that doesn't, that doesn't mean that there's any other op opportunities. Sam Harris has a, a book called The Moral Landscape, in mm -hmm. which he portrays life as a field of opportunity we, we can do things we've been granted the opportunity to do things i'm not he's, he doesn't respond to why that thing exists he just says okay we've been granted this let's see what we do 
there's a field of feelings, emotions, positive, negative. Let's try to maximize the good ones. Let's try to reduce suffering and increase well-being, however you define it. So in accordance to this statement, which I see as the most coherent, but not definitely mm -hmm. coherent, I would say that trying to understand the origin of all the vices and virtues at different levels of analysis, eating a donut is good or bad. If you, if you, if you analyze my neurotransmitters or the amount of dopamine being segregated in my brain, you can have the certainty that I like the donut. But do I like the liking of the donut? Mm -hmm. I do not. I, I hate that. I would change that taste if I could instantly. If I have, if I have a list of the tastes I, I hold or I have, I would erase that and I would put broccoli or I, could, does I that, would put- Does that not, I'm, I'm sure you have an answer to this. So walk with me on this question. Does that not trip you out though? The fact that, and again, none of these are new concepts, but that biologically you like that donut. Consciously, for lack of a better word, you do not like that donut. Why can't you, because we do have maybe a gift of consciousness, why does the biology win? Maybe is the question. Like, it doesn't... so pick broccoli. Just pick broccoli. But are you claiming that me not liking my liking of the donut is in some way apart from my biology? Doesn't it have to be? Well, no, no, no. no. Let me stop there. It's not apart from your biology. But those two concepts, you cannot hold those two concepts. They they are completely incongruent, right? They're diametrically opposed. You liking it and you not liking it. They are congruent because they they are existing simultaneously at different levels of analysis. At the level of homeostasis of an environment which is super different to our current one, it was correct to seek for whatever amount of sugar you can get your sure. get access to. And the same thing applies to everything. If there's multiple layers of thought occurring simultaneously in our brains, and the most basic one might tell you to to force to, to, to rape people in the street mm -hmm. to have mm -hmm. so you can maximize the, the spreading of your genes because that, that was the strategy that mm -hmm. it was predominantly used before in our evolutionary history. But that doesn't mean that another layer of consciousness can be added to that with prefrontal cortex being but able who's to. Who's the real you in, in the spirit of a Sam Harris type question? Who is the real Alex and what does he actually believe? There's no even you. those words fail, but you, I think you understand the spirit of it. There's no you. The self doesn't exist. It's self not a coherent, exist. a coherent concept. Self doesn't. So say more. I know what you mean, but say more about that. We, we tend to perceive our, I've just had a great uh, guest in my show that explained this in a much better way that, that I could. Jay Garfield is an absolute mastermind about this masterful ex uh, experience having a conversation with him but apart i will try to articulate in whatever manner i can what the theory about the inexistence of the self is which with which i agree but that doesn't mean that i can articulate it sure. successfully i think that we, we tend to perceive ourselves as being as having a locus of control somewhere where the causal order of the universe doesn't isn't affected you are your brain is not subject to cause and effect in the same way that a mango is. You can cut it, you can destroy it, you can eat it, but there is something in you. We intuitively feel this. 
that is not subject to cause and effect, which is apart from any everything. And so allows you to not just be the effect of some mm -hmm. previous cause, mm -hmm. which we are. And we are embedded in the universe. We're just part of it. Mm -hmm. it's, it's hard to get rid of this illusion, but you can. If, I think meditation helps in this and realizing how the thing that has helped me realize this in a tangible manner the most possible is realizing that you've got no idea what the next word you utter will be. Mm -hmm. I've got no idea what the next one will be. They just thoughts just come from where I've got no idea. I'm not aware of that. And that also happens when you choose between two things. Okay, you choose between A and B, but were you choosing to choose? You were not. You, you just presuppose the choosing. Okay, so let's say you choose to choose between A and B. You haven't chosen to choose. So th there's always a retrospective analysis that you can do to come into darkness and realize that, that A, there's some cause and effect going on here, which I haven't been the author mm -hmm. of because I as a concept doesn't exist. I buy that. I, I buy that in the spirit of the cause and effect point, because I, I, I agree with that. I, I personally believe I, I often call to me, that's logic. People hear logic. They think different things to me. Logic in its purest form is something happened that caused something else to happen. And if you apply that to the universe, everything logic is a universal principle. Everything has happened for a reason, quite literally. We like to go back to the point of the Big Bang as the starting point. Likely it goes prior to that and why the Big Bang and all that. But if you take if, if you had a supercomputer that could do this, you could go from the Big Bang and look at all the things that happened that led to you and I having this conversation right now, which gets very much to a conversation about free will in that free will must not exist then, right? Because all of those things were in a sequence of events of motion, which I think ties very much to your point or the concept of the theory about self, that self doesn't exist. It's an interesting thing because it, it does beg the question as it often does, how, do we, how are we defining self? I think what we're, how we're defining self is to say a being, as you said, that exists outside of cause and effect. We have the, you have the ability to make decisions um, disconnected from the, from the universe and the sequence that was started and whenever it started. And I think I agree with that. Let me stop there. Like, what's your, all right, so I get the theory. If I'm saying it correctly, you, you tell me. If not, obviously correct it. But what do you, how do you feel about that? Do you have any, feel? and now that's a funny question because your feeling is meaningless in the spirit of that, right? Your feeling is just the, you know, that sequence of events, but I'm going to ask it anyway. What is your feeling about that? I don't think there's a way of getting away from logic. There's, what would being apart from logic be? Can you even start defining that? I, I don't think so. And even if you were able to, to do it hypothetically in a hypothetical stance or universe in which logic didn't reign, what your decisions were created by would be a random concaten concaten mm -hmm. concatenations of acts that you do not want to be the responsible of your acting. You want your acting to be created by feelings that you reflectively endorse. You do not want your acting to be caused randomly. So that debunks free will mm -hmm. in a in the in the root in the in the deepest way possible. I agree. I'm sure you've come across people that hear the word logic, hear the idea that we are just a sequence of events, that logic does reign supreme, and they and they want to throw up. 
right? Deeply, I'm not, I'm not categorizing people, but deeply spiritual people, people that rely on intuition and have this belief that our minds are so incomplete and that there's so much more. There's, there's, there's all these different things. I would argue what they're saying is still falls within the reins of logic. Do you, you sit in the same place? Yeah. Okay. yeah is there sure. any credence the, to what they say? Is it possible that any of it is valid? Yeah, there's literal truths and there's metaphorical truths. But let me, let me first do a comment about what you said about logic. There's a great book by Steven Pinker called Rationality. And mm. there's a quote in it. Let me, let me see if I can remember it correctly. That there's no, I'm not quoting it literally, but the, the, the gist is, is here. There's no way of arguing against logic with logic. You are using logic in order to be able to argue on, mm. against, uh, against some logic. So by starting the debate, you're getting away from the debate. You've lost it. You, right? cannot, you cannot even start it. So those people who hold their logics to be true are, are at the same time saying that logic itself doesn't make sense. Okay, but God exists and that's a logical statement. And I'm saying that logic doesn't, isn't the thing that we should be ruling our lives by. So by it's, it, it doesn't, it's not coherent. You, it's just mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. not something that you would rigorously hold the debate with. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's right. I think it's the perfect response to it. I, it. It still leaves the door open to where we were before that there may be things that we like, I think Kant talked about this, the idea of cause and effect and that that's kind of the overarching a priori concept. It's one of them, right? We, we have to entertain the idea that maybe there is something beyond cause and effect. By definition, that concept came from humans. We created it. So by definition, it may be limited right there. There may be things well beyond that. To us, that feels like base level. It has to be something happens, then something else happens. That doesn't even seem like you and I can question or debate that. But we have to entertain the idea that maybe there are concepts that we can't even fathom that exist that override cause and effect. That is possible, right? Do we Are we good on that? <laughs> the fact you, you're you're claiming that there's concepts that we cannot understand yes and maybe more directly that we have to acknowledge that cause and effect as primal as that seems as base level as that seems as something that we all have to agree to it's possible that it's not the foundational concept or a foundational concept it's that not possible against... that cause doesn't have to lead to effect Okay, that, 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 that goes against the, the thesis of the beginning of infinity from David Deutsch. He, he states that we are universal computers, however you want to define that. We ultimately can, everything is understandable. It is mind-blowing that our minds cannot be blown. Mind-blowing that our minds can, but, but why? Why do we, where, where does the confidence come from? I, I don't disagree, it's possible, but why would we conclude that? Why would we have conviction around that? Because in principle, we can understand everything. There's nothing that is with enough time and effort and cognitive capacity. Everything is understandable. But, but that, that belief, that assumption, that conclusion is generated based on human minds and human perspective, formulating our, looking at our inputs and formulating that conclusion. If we acknowledge that the human mind is not, is incomplete, then that statement can't, we can't believe that statement with any certainty, right? Because to have the confidence that with enough time, we can understand anything that presupposes that our minds are capable of understanding the universe. I, I think I have to believe that that may be true, but it just as likely may not be true. It's entirely possible. We tap out at a certain point and we can never understand anything beyond that. 
is what what that seems like something you won't like as a conclusion but is it is it true no it, it makes sense to me but i would love to know what david dodge had would yeah. say to this because it it might be that his statement about the universality of human cognition only applies to what we have we, what we've done until now so that future concepts might not be computable or understood by human cognition right but still you're not defining human cognition by just stating it so mm. depending if, if there's not a, a definite border between what is human cognition and what is not there's leeway to having a genetically modified person with a thousand of IQ who would be able to understand that. And then that person would create another one with a million of IQ who would just <laughs> blow everything up and understand everything. So technically, yeah, everything is understandable then if you In don't theory. restrict it. In theory, right? Like, yeah. Because uh, I still, I think that's an important distinction. It's where we were before. And maybe I'll bring us back here as we as we come close to the end. Not at the end yet, though. Um, to me, the only... <laughs> logical conclusion, which I find very difficult to say words in this conversation in the best possible way. I mean, that is the best possible compliment. That's what it should be. Is that you have to question you. We don't know anything. There's no, there's no ability to be. It's not that there's no ability. Let me, let me be careful here. We should not have conviction or confidence in anything. It's a theory. There's theories that we can believe should be true. There are things that we know based on science appear to be true but there's nothing that we actually know for sure. And because of that, if nothing else, we should be questioning a lot more. We should move through life baffled, surprised, amazed by all of it. And nothing should seem like, yeah, I knew that was gonna happen. What do you say to that? That in order to not encounter anything that was, wasn't expected by you, which, I think by definition has to be the case because of what you said before about of, of pre predicting everything out of the beginning of the, of the big bang, mm -hmm. that that's an incoherent concept. You cannot simulate the universe without the universe. That that's the smallest computing that you, the computer that you can build in order to simulate the universe. The, the universe itself is the most compact way of doing the universe, but go, going back, I, I don't think the, the the phrase that you said about how you you have to always put the the caveat of everything nothing but this nothing but this N nothing but you this. can you cannot hold certainty yeah, on anything yeah. except for this yeah and that's where we were before it's it's almost that we just shouldn't maybe certainty is the wrong word what if I said it this way and I don't know if this works we shouldn't expect anything. In the, in the purest form of that word, there's nothing that we should expect because ex expectation assumes understanding so that you can predict something that's going to happen. And what I think we're saying in this conversation is we are super overinflated in our confidence to be able to predict and understand things. Therefore, we shouldn't actually expect anything. And I don't mean that in like a self-improvement motivational way of like, don't set expectations. Like, I mean it in the purest possible way. We should not expect anything because we don't understand. Like right now, my dog is sitting next to me in this room. My expectation is that she's going to keep doing that and she's not going to bite my leg off. She could, but we can even go deeper than that. She could get zapped up by aliens right now. She could turn into a person. She could be God and she could show herself to me, right? Like 
the idea that I have, and, and I think it gets back to that impossibility point that we were at before, but I'm here and I have to function. If I allow my mind, there's not enough bandwidth, as you said, for me to run through all the possibilities of what my dog could do right now. So for me to function, quote unquote, function, whatever that means as a human, I have to turn that off and rely on certain things to get me through the day. I'm cool with that. How do I decide what to turn off? How do I decide what things I'm going to focus on to get through the day? This is where it starts to continually get circular because at the end of the day, we have to root ourselves in something to make decisions to move forward. We have to value something to say, you know what? I'm going to dismiss the God thing and the alien thing because that just seems useless to me and unimportant. But I'm going to entertain the fact that she could rip my leg off right now. So I'm going to act, I'm going to keep an eye on her to make sure that doesn't happen. Okay, why did I make that decision to focus on that? You know what I mean? Like our decisions have to be rooted in something. No, I think the process of stopping to process the, that deep philosophical question about the existence of presuppositions stops automatically. It's not you mm. who decides to stop it. It's in the same way that I can say automatic respiration has stopped. And then you realize that you are breathing and then you start breathing consciously. But there's a moment in which you stop thinking about breathing <laughs> because yeah. there's no way of holding that forever. So in the same way that we are not deciding whether the heart is pumping. We do not decide when to stop thinking about it because you cannot be conscious of an unconscious thing. Mm, I get it. I get it. All right. Let me ask you this as we, as we literally come towards the end now, what, what, what do you want out of life? Like you're, you're a relatively young person. Um, obviously philosophy and these types of questions fascinate you, but as you think about 50, 60, 70, 80 years from now, what, what do you hope for in your life? Oof, that's a tough question. I think understanding deeper what the origin of vices and virtues is, is a big one of that. Understanding why we tend to like and end up consuming certain things. And by consuming, I, I don't only refer to eating a donut. Mm -hmm. It's also all the activities that you do. The difference between what feels good and what is good, that is the ultimate thing, which I think it should be seeked for. And well, that's just another representation of what we've been talking about, that there's presuppositions. It's equivalent logically. What I'm saying about understanding, I, th I think at a, at a deep enough level, the two statements are exactly the same, saying that there's presuppositions and that we should be trying to seek for more understanding of the difference between what feels good and what is good is ultimately the same because they are pointing towards truth and there's hypothetically only one truth, one truth that exists. And so whatever you are go going towards, if it is true, it's the same pathway. And I feel like going towards truth is this, the thing that would make me maybe not consider it absolutely worth of, worthy of being lived, but enough so that I do not regret living. I think that life should be a continuous trying to avoid future regret. Let's say when I'm 80 and I'm looking back at my, at my, at my life, I want to do whatever it takes so that when I'm unable to do anything else, I do not regret what I did. That's the thing. That's how I see life. It's a constant trying to not regret it when you finish it. How, do you, how would you determine 
that you were what you regret if i've oh yeah that's a great question i, I don't think regret makes any sense at all so <laughs> because you, you would have done this you would have taken the exact same pathway if you had the right. exact same situation with the exact same knowledge so you you cannot claim any kind of evil in the person who did the incorrect who took the incorrect mm -hmm. decision mm -hmm. if you would do the exact same thing if you if you were put in the exact same situation so it, it's not coherent Re repentance thought about deep, deep deeply enough doesn't make sense as a concept i agree i agree where, where does that leave you though on that aspiration for life does that change the answer well, if I'm trying to avoid repentance, or repentance doesn't make sense, I guess I cannot say anything rigorous about. I cannot respond that question rigorously yeah. enough. Yeah, I agree. Well, I'll tell you where I land, and it's insufficient and it's not adequate, but I think it aligns to something you believe. Back to dopamine, where you were before. I I believe the only thing that I know, or the closest thing I have to certainty, or, or something that's tangible and real in my life that I could I could I could feel and hold on to is that feeling of pleasure and goodness. That's the yes. only thing. That's the only thing that I could think of that truly drives me and dictates what I do. I fully acknowledge there's a number of other things driving me that are completely beyond anything that I can understand or that happened before me and led to where I am. But when I eat that donut or when I you know, see my child or whatever other things bring us pleasure, play the piano, I know that feeling in my body. I don't know why it's there. I don't know where it came from. I don't know who created it but I know the way it makes me feel in that moment, right? I don't even know if it's a simulation of me feeling good, but me in that moment feels that goodness. That's the only thing that I could say is tangible. And I think this is a point you have made. Therefore, the only things we do in life is to get to that feeling. Now, how we get there and the mental gymnastics we do with our consciousness of, you know, some people just shoot heroin and they have that feeling and they feel great. Some people dedicate their whole lives to living in a cave because that gets them there, right? Everybody's got their, but I think everybody's chasing that same thing. I don't know what that means for us in life, but I think I end where you are. So it's, it's funny what I think I'm gonna do on this episode, Alex, is I, I, I start with what's the value. And then I usually put that quote in the, to me, I'm gonna leave it blank because I, to me, that's what I took away from this conversation in the best possible way. Is that, is that putting anything in there? Yeah, say. Is that, is that good marketing? I don't think it is. I don't care about marketing. I really don't. I mean, I obviously I do because I'm doing this and I post it. So that's, I can acknowledge that insufficiency, but um, to the best I can calculate it, I value much more the conversation and the insight than the marketing and the success of it. To me, to your point, the truth is the only thing we should be after. The truth to me from this conversation is it would feel untrue of me to write anything in that box because we've, dis we've discredited anything we could possibly put in this box. Not if you acknowledge that there's a difference between literal and metaphorical truths. Okay. There's a great 10 minute, 10 minute video in which <clears throat> Brett Weinstein, yep. <clears throat> in which Brett Weinstein explains the difference between literal and metaphorical truths. Okay. A literal truth is something like this apple exists and is red, let's say. You, you, have, oh, you hold an apple. Bachelors are single, like that type of concept. Have you ever heard that phrase? No, before? I have not. Okay, so I, I, if I'm not going in the right direction, stop me. But by definition, that has to be true. Bachelors are single because the word bachelor was created to say somebody is single. Is it in that vein? Yeah. Okay. Oh, yeah. yeah. That, that reminds me of the fact that consciousness is by definition the only thing that cannot be an illusion. 
Right. By definition, yeah, yeah, I'm with you. I'm with you. Okay, so the, the, those are the literal truths, which are a correct representation of reality, like you would be doing if you were to put nothing into the title of this episode. But a metaphorical truth would be me believing in God and becoming a Christian. It's statistically proven that people who become Christians end up having less vices, having a higher household income. In general, people who are Christian tend to, tend to have better lives. And I think that this is quite proven. And I would better word is funky. That better on word. average. On average, on whatever. But, but even better, like, like the metrics that, that are being chosen to determine what's better, less vices. Somebody could say, yeah, that's exactly the point. I'm not saying I agree with this, but Christians have it wrong. They're, they're optimizing to minimize vices. They're assuming at the end of the day, they're going to be judged in some way. Therefore, they're sacrificing. Like that could be complete bullshit. You should have every vice you want because this is it. And if goodness is what it's, you know what I mean? So it's a very um, self-serving metrics that were chosen by a bunch of Judeo-Christians to say Christians live the best lives, right? Like oh, in the yeah. spirit of what we're saying. But defining, I was defining best as, as maximizing fitness. I wasn't defining it in any, uh, what, yeah, I, I made a mention to the, whatever metric you want to use sure. being household income, those things, but they, they, they end up maximizing their fitness in terms of that religion is spreading a lot because it's capable of spreading. Fair. And that, and, and I would say that there is some mental stability associated on average to the people who believe in those who have those delusional beliefs, which I consider to be incorrect, literally, but true metaphorically, it. because it leads to better lives in some ways than you would have had if you had not believed in those in a literal way. So I'm with you on that. I will say as we as we end here, because unfortunately, I think you and I, I say this in some other episodes, but I think it's never been more true that you and I could probably do this all day in, in the yeah. best possible way. That best life, I think as we followed that thread, fitness spreading, right? The ability for the religion to spread, we would get to a similar conclusion, which is we can't actually say that's a good thing. We can't actually say that's a positive if we're trying to net things out positive or negative because those presuppositions exist, because we don't have all that information. It's that that becomes meaningless in and of itself, right? It is true that it does spread seemingly better than other religions right now. But we have no confidence that that metric is a meaningful metric that we should even care about. I think that's something that we'd have to acknowledge through this. Well, in, util in utilitarian terms and seeing the life of the average non-believer and seeing the average of uh, the, the life of the average believer in uh, correcting for all the different variables that you need to correct for, like the region in which they live, age, in, I don't know, all the variables. You do that, and I think studies show that people who believe in God tend to have more stable lives, which would make me believe that they are succeeding in their lives more than the alternative. On average, there's there's sure there, sure. The, 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 the two bell curve the, the two bell curves don't match perfectly. So that it's there are some people who are Christian and are not satisfied. Totally. And there's people who are not Christian who are satisfied. I'm taking so more issue with the succeeded word because succeeded implies we have an understanding of what our point is on this earth and, and Christians on average are doing a better job of achieving that. I'm attacking that, that succeed word because we have no yeah. idea what the meaning of us being on this earth is. So I think it's a little bit incestuous of, of, of anybody not saying you, but of anybody to say, here's what I do. And it's the best thing. Like, you know what I mean? It gets funky in that. It's, but, it's not about Christians. Well, I think Judeo-Christian beliefs 
have influenced a lot of our societal beliefs. Yeah, sure, sure. So that's the circular nature I'm saying about it. So how we're measuring success is rooted in beliefs that we are saying are the best to achieve that success. And that's the incestuous. It's not, I don't think anybody did it intentionally to cause harm necessarily, some do, but that concept of it. But let me say this, um, Alex, as we, as we run out here. Um, I, I knew this was going to be a good conversation. I knew my mind was going to hurt at the end of it in the best possible way. And I think you embody as much as anybody I've ever met, more so than I even can, of what I aspire to do, of deeply thinking and questioning everything, every, every word, every detail. In the spirit of what we're talking about, I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing, but I know it resonates. I know it gives me that feeling of goodness we talked about before. So you've brought that into my life uh, through this conversation. And I, I appreciate it a ton. And I, I love the conversation. I really did. Well, that's equivalent to saying that I'm a good scientist and that's the best compliment I can get, I think. There we go. So we're both feeling pretty good. Um, well, Alex, thank you a ton. I appreciate it. I hope you have an awesome rest of your day. It's been a pleasure.